By the time the Hollywood Police Department decides to close the Adam Walsh file, saying it is inactive and nothing is moving forward, the Walshes have left Florida and moved to Washington, D.C. They have a daughter named Megan, born less than a year after Adam was kidnapped. John Walsh is now known on Capitol Hill as an outspoken advocate for missing children. The missing children bill became the personal crusade of John and Reve Walsh, whose six-year-old son Adam was kidnapped from a South Florida shopping center. They appeared before congressional committees on behalf of the bill, urging Congress and people everywhere to take more responsibility for children. The bill President Reagan signed today allows parents to list their missing children with the FBI's central crime computer if local police are unable to help them. The computer is linked to law enforcement agencies nationwide. Because of overlapping jurisdictions and the lack of centralized information, parents of missing children have faced frustration and anger in their attempts to locate their children. Callahan Walsh, Adam's younger brother, wasn't born when his parents started turning their attention from anger into action. Now as a child advocate for the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, their vigilant commitment is a source of pride for him. The 24-hour news cycle that we have now and, and the, the consumption of media, it wasn't the same back then. You had uh, some local news and really the one-hour nightly news. And if your case made it or your story made it to nightly news, that was a big deal. But missing children's case really weren't making national media attention. Adam's case did. Um, and although Adam's remains were found two weeks after his abduction, my parents were testifying in front of Congress trying to change legislature for children, and meanwhile receiving letter after letter of parents of other missing children who weren't getting the attention that Adam's case got. And that's when my parents decided and realized that they needed to create uh, some sort of organization which would go on to be the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. They created in their garage off a card table in the landline an organization that's gone on to recover over 260,000 missing children. Local 10 and Local10.com present the Florida Files. I'm Michelle Solomon, and this is the story of the disappearance of Adam Walsh. is gaining recognition as the face of parents of missing children everywhere. He starts getting asked to appear on television shows, in 1984 on a PBS special called A Parent's Greatest Fear, and in 1987 on an HBO documentary called How to Raise a Street Smart Child. The next year he makes his debut as host of a show on a new television network, and he begins carving out a career as a crime fighter. This is America's Most Wanted. On his show, America's Most Wanted. My growing up, uh, my father was pretty much in the spotlight. He started America's Most Wanted. I think I was just a few years old at the time. America's Most Wanted, again, started back when Fox was only on one night a week. Um, they had programming on Sunday nights, and that was it. And it was uh, America's Most Wanted. 
and another show with a young actor from South Florida named Johnny Depp uh, in 21 Jump Street. And that's what kicked off uh, Fox as, as a network. Um, and, in fact, when my father was first approached to do the show, he refused a, a few times, in fact. John Walsh is traveling the country, profiling criminals on TV. But back in Hollywood, Florida, not much is happening with the case of his murdered son. It's 1991. Again, a newspaper article leads to a witness. Another building block, perhaps, in the case against Otis Toole? The same year, Toole confesses to four other slayings in Florida, and receives four more life sentences, all unrelated to the killing of Adam Walsh. Toole is serving time at the Florida State Prison in Rayford, but he isn't on death row anymore. His death sentence was appealed and overturned due to facts presented previously that were deemed, quote, unconstitutional in a court in Duval County, Florida. In August of 1991, Hollywood resident William Missler reads a story in the newspaper. The article is there to mark the 10th anniversary of Adam's head being discovered in a Florida canal. A man by the name of William Missler, who owns this Hollywood business, came forward to police to say that he saw Toole and Walsh together in Toole's car back in 1981. Under hypnosis, Missler described Toole's car, even including a dent that hadn't been made public. Missler talked about seeing lawn tools in the car. Toole was known to have worked cutting lawns. So far, no one's been charged. Connie Hicks, Eyewitness News, Nightbeat. According to a police statement from his wife, after seeing Toole's photo on television in 1983, he tells her, I think I've seen this man. He looks familiar. But she says her husband tells her he doesn't connect it at the time. His wife urges him to go to the police two years after Adam's disappearance, when he does connect the man suspected of Adam Walsh's beheading with the man he saw at the Sears store two years before. But Missler tells his wife there's no need for him to speak up. He believes police are 100% sure that it is Tool, and there are other witnesses anyway, so he doesn't contact them. And he remembers the man he saw with a boy was driving a white Cadillac. But he remembers hearing on the news about a blue van. The news reports about the blue van threw me off, he tells detectives. If it wasn't for that blue van, I would have come up as soon as I remembered what I saw. And I just thought I saw a dirty relative riding a clean-cut kid home, he says on a police statement dated July 30th, 1991. Joe Matthews says he found Missler to be a credible witness and talks about the day he went to interview him a few years later. He, he was waiting for traffic to move in the parking lot, and he sees him double park his car and get out and take the kid by the hand, open up the car, and he didn't think anything of it. He thought it was like a, he, he called him Uncle Buck. Everybody has an Uncle Buck, you know. But he described him in detail, green teeth, ugly, unkept, you know. And... Um, and he looked at the car and got a great description of the car, and I validated every dent on that car that he noticed as happening prior to the abduction. And I interviewed him uh, back in 96 and again in, um, I forgot, maybe um, 96 and 
maybe 2006. And this guy was very anal. I mean, everything he used, when we went to visit him, you know, had the little brown pebbles in the front. And as we're leaving, you could see him out there raking the track marks, you know what I mean? And then when we went into his house, and that was to our advantage because he was so focused, you know. Um, it looked like um, a baseball field or a golf course where the, where the uh, lines of the vacuum cleaner were just so perfect. Nineteen ninety-four, Things are changing at the Hollywood Police Department. A new command staff is assigned to take over the criminal investigation unit, and Detective Jack Hoffman, who's been the lead detective on the Walsh case, is transferred out of the unit. Detective Mark Smith, that former patrolman that saw the Walshes the day after Adam disappeared? Well, he's gained a reputation for thorough cold case investigations. He's assigned to dig back into the Adam Walsh case. I, re- I read your report where you had, you know, kind of gone over all these. There were some crazy tips. There were some halfway decent tips. There were just things coming in right. from a lot of different places. But there was nothing really that was going to crack the case. Uh, I mean, and, right. and then and then 1994, and you have to tell me, someone decided that you needed to, that you were, you know, at this point, you, you knew cold case. And at this point, something really needed to be done. I no, that's, that's that's basically what happened. I mean, it was a obviously it's probably one of Hollywood's most high-profile um, unsolved um, crimes, and and I had been in homicide for let's see, '94. I was in homicide for five years at the time, and and did work a couple other cold cases successfully, and and it was decided that. You know, we need to take another look at what we got, you know, with the, as far as evidence-wise, anything-wise, as far as the Adam Walsh case from 1981. Mm. But there were things that happened in, in in those ensuing years, like, you know, the evidence, the white car, the Cadillac. I know right. that whole, Joe told me that whole story of all the, yep. you know, it went here, it went to scrap, it went to, so, so yep. that, there was like missing evidence. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the the very first thing I did when I was assigned to reinvestigate it was see what evidence we got, you know, because in, in 1981 there was no DNA, there's no, and so in '94, you know, it was interest. I was interested in finding the, the what was reported as bloody carpet that was in the white Cadillac, and also to find the white Cadillac. And make a long story short, all were all were were gone. Whether it went to the scrap, who knows where the carpet went? Um, there was no record of it, uh, a real traceable record of it. It's 1996. A high-profile court case is playing out in Broward County. News organizations have begun to press the issue of releasing details of Florida State Attorney Investigation number 9602262 
and Hollywood Police Department investigation number 8156073, the Adam Walsh abduction and murder files. They're citing Florida's open records law. Your Honor, one more thing. Last fall, after endless arguments, the media convinced Circuit Judge Leroy Moe to open the files. It was agreed the information would be put on microfilm and turned over to the news media no later than noon tomorrow. Due to developments that I really don't care to go into, there are other things that need to be done in this investigation before that point is reached. Prosecutors were not allowed. Reve Walsh, sitting here on the right, sat waiting for her turn to ask the judge to seal the files. She never got her chance, but she and her husband, John Walsh, believe police could make an arrest. It is this man, convicted murderer and drifter Otis Toole, who is believed by many to have killed the boy. Toole has confessed to the crime and recanted two times. If he is a suspect, police apparently don't feel they have enough evidence for an arrest. And the judge doubted any arrest or grand jury indictment was imminent. And the release of this material would not be prejudicial or cause irreparable harm to the state or to its case. Based on that, the emergency motion to stay is denied. On February 16, 1996, despite the Walsh's objections, a judge makes his decision. The media gets the files and finds 10,000 pages of stories of missing evidence, intimate details about the Walsh's lives around the time of Adam's abduction, Honest Tools confessions, eyewitness accounts, and much, much more. Former Channel 10 reporter and anchor Connie Hicks talks about getting those files. I had asked two Miami-Dade homicide detectives with a great deal of experience and who were outside then the Hollywood Police Department to come and go over the case file. And the case file was huge. There was a lot of information to go through. Our experts, Clint Wonderly and Doug Stevens, former Metro Dade policemen with nearly 25 years experience in homicide investigations, have gone through much of the case. In regards to physical evidence, there's not anything else they can do. They have, uh, they have what they have, and it's not going to get any better. But Toole would change details of his story and follow-up statements, then recant the entire confession, confess again, recant again. It definitely creates problems, and um, they're difficult, but I don't think they're problems that can't be overcome. preclude a prosecution taking place. One man is still on the top of everyone's list. In January 1996, a call comes into the America's Most Wanted tip line. It's 10.18 p.m. The caller says he's involved in a Christian ministry that visits prisons and that he met an inmate named Otis Toole. He was told by another inmate in December that Toole had admitted killing Adam Walsh. The inmate said this was common knowledge all around the prison. Smith continues to work the case and is keeping his eye on Tool in prison. He's hoping to get a confession. Yeah. He died in like 19, like, like a two years after I started the investigation because um, I knew he was in failing health. Mm -hmm. And I had arrangements with the um, Florida State Prison that if he, when he goes, like, 
looking like he's on his deathbed. Please call me. And so, you know, you know, the potentially a dying declaration to get, but the problem happened is that he he went ill from the Florida State Penitentiary, Florida State Prison, and then they transferred him to a medical uh, medical um, facility, jail facility that didn't get the. It was never relayed back to me that he was in dying health. So I never got a chance to get up there. After we found out later he was he had passed, I never I never got I never got the notification that he was in failing health. Otis Toole dies on September fifteenth, nineteen ninety six, from cirrhosis. Smith may not have gotten his deathbed confession, but a woman named Sarah Patterson calls America's Most Wanted, identifying herself as Otis Toole's niece. In November 1996, two months after Otis's death, Patterson tells an investigator assigned by the state attorney's office in Fort Lauderdale about her Uncle Otis. Uncle Otis helped raise me, she says, and my sister and brother. If someone would mess with us kids, he'd go ballistic on them. She tells the investigator she had gone to see her uncle in prison in December 1995. She says that during the conversation, Toole admits that he murdered Adam Walsh. Investigator Phil Mundy asked the woman, when you spoke to him, was there any conversation about the Walsh child? Sarah says, I asked him, did he do it? And he told me, well, he laughed and he said, yeah. And I said, well, where is he? Uncle Otis told her, no one will ever know. It's now 2006. 25 years have passed since Adam Walsh was abducted and killed. Ravey Walsh has had enough. A mother wants justice for her son. In an ABC News Nightline interview, she speaks about the decision to take matters into her own hands. I can't go to my grave not doing everything that I can possibly do. And I said, we're going to get a cold case detective and we're going to start from the beginning. I don't care if you go to work just to pay the bill of this private investigator, but we're going to get somebody. That cold case detective was someone who had been on and off the case since the very beginning of the disappearance of Adam Walsh. Joe Matthews. February 2006, when John came down to um, um, for John doing a filming in Fort Lauderdale, and they called me and asked if I'd meet him for a cup of coffee. So I went up at the hotel in the conference room, and it was just Reve, John, and myself. Everybody else was asked to leave, and uh, and Reve. Usually she's somewhat, appears to be a very strong woman, but appears to be subservient to John. But she took control of the meeting. And, um, <clears throat> and she said that, um, you know, she wanted to know before she died who killed her son. And at the time, I was working for America's Most Wanted. Conducting a homicide investigation literally is 
putting together a thousand piece puzzle and every piece has to fit for it to make sense and if one piece just doesn't fit exactly you don't shave it to make it fit because the rest of the puzzle won't fit you got to take it apart and start over Matthews has pages and pages of files, but what he wants to see are photos of that missing car. He finds out that the crime lab at FDLE has 98 photo negatives in their possession. After what he calls, quote, a perfect storm of mix-ups and red tape, he finally gets connected to a woman at FDLE named Sharon Gilgerty, and she's more than willing to help. She says, you know, what's really disturbing our protocol is when we get crime scene photos, we develop the roll of film into negatives. Then we file the negatives. And only upon request do we develop the negatives to prints. She said, you're the first one in 20-something years that ever requested these photos to be developed. I said, these photos were taken three years after Adam went missing. And nobody has ever looked at them. So as upset as I was that no one ever looked at him, I was kind of excited I would be the first one to look at him. Luminol is a chemical that, that if you, let's say there's a crime scene and there's a blood spatter and they wash off the blood and they get rid of it and they could come back weeks later or whatever and make the room pitch black spray the, this chemical in there and then turn on a black light and it illuminates it to a beautiful blue color. The first thing I look at is the machete that was recovered. Well, in Artist Tools' own words, just listen to the person. Don't think about the questions you're going to ask. Listen to what they say, you know. He, uh, after he beheaded Adam, and he used that same machete working, because he didn't go on the roofs, he just cleared the path around it, you know. He covered the handle, the wooden handle, and it was a company uh, machete with uh, uh, electrical tape, black electrical tape. But when they recovered it, it still had the black electrical tape on it. So when FDLE processed it, they removed the tape, which in fact, preserved the blood in the handle, the wood handle like a sponge. You've been to Disney. And in Disney, there's always um, these contests called the Hidden Mickey. You look for. I know the Hidden Mickey. Yeah. They have it in their carpeting. Everywhere. They have it in, they have it in the glass, the, in the mirror, in the, everywhere yeah. you look. Well, there's a hidden Mickey in every homicide investigation. You just got to find it. And that's your wow factor. That's your, I it's found the hidden, yeah, I found the hidden Mickey. And I still hadn't found the hidden Mickey, even though I was convinced Otis Tool did it, even though I got confessions, even though I got, oh my God, testimony from family members, you know, that he admitted it to them. It just wasn't the hidden Mickey. And, um, and I look at this machete and I said, oh my God, this is the hidden Mickey. You know, maybe. But what the hidden Mickey was, uh, he admitted that he, after the 
beheaded at him. He had the head, he did things to the head. Then he threw the head behind him and it landed face first onto the carpet. For me, it was like the Shroud of Turin, if you, you know, mm -hmm. whether... So you could see the cutout of the child's head. Yeah, you could see, it's just like... The uh, way he was maybe laying. Yeah. There's a face there. And was that from the luminol? From the luminol, the blue luminol. And his mouth is open and, you know. To me, it was the one thing that a mother knows is that this is their child. This picture is their child. After a little over two years of going over mounds and mounds of evidence, doing an analysis, and studying those negatives, Matthews meets with Hollywood Police Chief Chad Wagner. Based on the actual police report and my analysis of that report, and that turned out to be a book that thick. And then I, uh, I put it all together, gave him a copy. I said, he said, one thing I'll do is I promise you I'll read every page. And Chad we'll have Wagner? It. Yeah, and he said, I promise you I'll analyze every page that you write to validate it or not. And then, uh, unbeknownst to me, he turned over his report to my document to um, the state attorney's office. And then we had a big meeting. And... Uh, with the state attorney, Walsh's, myself, uh, Hollywood PD, the attorneys, and uh, that's when they officially closed the case. December 12th, 2008. Hollywood Police Chief Chad Wagner calls a press conference, and it becomes breaking news nationally. Rather than sealing the deal with Otis Tool, which we should have done, we took a defense look at it, and we tried to defend ourselves for the mistakes that were made. Although I was not a member of the Hollywood Police Department when this tragedy occurred in 1981, I am nevertheless a parent who can only imagine the pain the Walshes have endured through the years without the satisfaction of closure of this investigation. It is inherently my responsibility on behalf of, on behalf of this police agency to express my remorse to the Walshes and indicate to them the emphasis we have placed on this continuing investigation, regardless of the initial investigative difficulties. Having analyzed and reviewed the Adam Walsh investigative files several times during the last year, I had the opportunity to meet retired Miami Beach homicide detective Joe Matthews, who sits back here to the left, who has been involved in this case since its inception and who had conducted an independent review and investigation of this case. Consistent with the opinions of investigators, past and present, I agree with the ultimate conclusion of this independent investigation that Otis Toole was the perpetrator of this crime. As we know, Otis Toole is deceased, and formal legal action is not possible, nor is it something that the Walsh family is seeking. However, in the interest of justice, the Hollywood Police Department is announcing today that it is our determination and conclusion that Otis Toole was the abductor and murderer of Adam Walsh. Who could take a six-year-old boy and murder him and decapitate him? Who? We needed to know. We needed to know. And... Uh, 
Today we know it's about justice. And for all the other victims who haven't gotten justice, I say one thing, don't give up hope. So you're convinced without a shadow of the doubt that Otis told it. Right. Yeah, it is what it is. Without a shadow. Without a shadow. No. Any, any, had this been prosecuted, I had so many other homicide cases that I've had prosecuted, convicted, where people eventually give a confession and validated everything else. Where this had so much more than that, and it was all ignored. So I think skeptics always say, uh, I've never seen a case closed where there isn't more, you know, there's no, re there's no remains were found where this decapitated head. Is it unusual to close a case where you, there's so much kind of circumstantial evidence and not really hard evidence? Um, yes. And, and, and we, just, we just want, there was enough to close this case? The decision was made that aside from anything else, Honest Tool could not have been ruled out and was not ruled out as uh, the primary suspect, the primary, the person we believe, you know, abducted Adam Walsh. Without a doubt, it was a um, random act. It was no. You know, there was speculation that there's, you know, someone was out to get revenge on the Walshes for whatever. It just that didn't add up, and essentially it was um, a stranger abduction, and it happens. On the next episode, John Walsh talks to the Florida Files, and 37 years after Adam's death. He still has plenty to say. Get more of the story through archive videos and online extras on the Florida Files page at local10.com. <laughs>